This is Paladin Financial Talk with Jeff Foley and the Paladin Financial Team. Basically, the more accounts you have, the more opportunities there are for mistakes. So taking control of your assets may help you to avoid some of those common mistakes that investors make. When a part of your financial strategy is out of tune, your long-term goals, your retirement savings, and your legacy can all suffer. Listen in as we address your financial concerns and provide helpful solutions to put you on the path to achieving your retirement goals, your money, and your plans in perfect harmony. And now, here's Paladin Financial Talk. Welcome to Paladin Financial Talk. I'm your host, Jeff Quick, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Mr. Jay Dacey, our local mortgage broker uh, that we utilize quite a bit through Guardian Financial. So welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. You bet. Tell us a little bit about, about yourself, Jay, mortgage broker. What What's a mortgage broker versus you know the other uh, entities out there that you could utilize? What kind of differentiates you maybe from, uh, from everybody else? Yeah, great question. So I grew up on a farm in Greenell, Minnesota, went to St. Thomas at uh, 18. Afterwards, I got into the mortgage business um, and throughout my career, which has been about 20 years, uh, I've worked in different channels. And ultimately, we found that the the mortgage brokerage channel is the best uh, channel to provide our clients loans uh, through because of the lower cost and more efficiency. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And we're here today really to talk about some of the tax savings opportunities, a little bit in general about the mortgage industry. So let's just jump into things right now. We've all been hearing a lot about the housing market, uh, mortgage rates, and so forth. Just give me a little big picture overview, Jay of the mortgage industry kind of as it stands today and maybe some tax considerations that people should look into. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if you've bought in a house the last couple of years, you've got a probably a, a good chance of having a super low rate. Rates are back up in the 8% range right now, which seems historically high, which has been historically high for the last, you know, two decades. But when I was born in 1979, I always joke that my, my grandparents gave me a CD from TCF for $500 and I was getting paid 18% and I'm sorry, 12% in the crib uh, on my <laughs> CD while my parents and grandparents were paying, you know, 18 to 22% on their interest rate. So it's, it's high uh, in the near future, a uh, recent future, but not historically it's, it's been much worse. Yeah. hundred percent. I remember my parents paying 16, 18%. Uh, my first home, I know I was real excited watching mortgage rates and this would have been back in, oh, let me think, uh, early 2000s, uh, maybe a little bit before that. And I was waiting 6% was kind of the number. If it got down to 6% or below, that was a great rate back then. Yep. Uh, so it's all, it's all relative, uh, depending on what you're doing, high interest rates could be good or bad. It just depends on which side of the table you're on sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And the a personal story, I bought my first house going into my senior college with my brother who had just gotten his master's in finance from Madison, okay. which is one of the top real estate schools. And I remember him coming home because I, I was still in, in college. I didn't qualify for the mortgage. I just had the down payment saved up. <clears throat> and he said, dude, I talked to the lender at Wells Fargo today and we could get five and a half percent on a five-year arm or seven and a half percent on a 30 year fixed. And I thought, well, five and a half sounds better than seven and a half. And he said, no, we'll never ever be able to borrow this much money for this cheap for that long. So I'm going to go with a 30 year fix. And I think he's, <laughs> he's been in like his eighth loan since then oh, on that wow. same property. Yeah. Yeah. I had an arm years ago as well. And my interest rate actually is adjustable. It kept going down Yeah. Uh, for a while. I had five years. I think I was down to like 1.63% at one point on my, uh, on my adjustable rate mortgage. So they all, they all have their, have their place. 
Uh, what what are some basic tax deductions, or what are some what's an easy way to kind of get into the conversation, Jay? Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to touch on a couple different things, but just kind of start with um, a big picture overview. So in our world, there's essentially four different buckets or tax buckets that we work with. Um, one is looking at income tax implications. Another one, if you were to sell a property, would be potentially capital gains taxes. Um, there's some cool things you can do with gifts to avoid um, uh, some gift taxes. And then also just the estate taxes, you know, what the family's going to do with the property at the time of their death. Sure. So there's kind of those four buckets we draw from. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Uh, well, let's give us a couple examples. Uh, tax rates today, tax savings opportunities. Can you itemize mortgage deductions anymore? It seems like People don't look at that uh, as deeply as they used to, or it's not as big a deal. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I started in the business in 2003, bought my first house, I was able to itemize because the standard deduction was fairly low and interest rates were you know, reasonably high. I think I was paying 5.5% in the first house I bought by myself. And so we were able to itemize. But then um, the previous administration, they did something... Uh, to the standard deduction, they, they raised it so that a single person currently, the standard deduction is 13800 And for a married couple, it's over $27,000 of a standard deduction. So, you know, think back two years ago when rates were at 3%. If you had a $600,000 mortgage at 3%, that's only $18,000, um, which you wouldn't even itemize on that. So um, recently with rates having gone up, now a person buying their first house for $500,000 at 8%, they've got $40,000. Um, worth of interest that first year, so we're going to see a lot more clients itemizing. Oh wow! I didn't even uh, I didn't even think about that. Everybody's so focused on interest rates that uh, they often don't look at the big picture. I I didn't think about that myself. Although I used to always buy as much house as I could afford when I bought it. Yep. The reason for me was uh, I looked at it very simple, simple minded, like uh, a million dollar house. I would have to put twenty twenty or two hundred thousand dollars down twenty percent. But now I could have that uh, equity and that increase in my property value on eight hundred thousand, you know, or on a million dollars. It only cost me two hundred thousand to have that a million dollars of appreciation. So I always kind of bought as much house as I could afford. Yeah. Uh, for for that reason, maybe maybe it was a little risky, but that's the way I looked at things. Yeah. So there's a, a thing that we call seventy three seven and one, and that is the housing markets. Uh, track record the last 81 years. So in the past 81 years, home values have gone up 73 years out of 81. And they've gone down only seven, and then they were flat one year. So it's a pretty winning track record. So your math is great as long as you're part of that 73 uh, years of, of rising appreciation. Because if you think about just you know a first-time home buyer, if they put 5% down on a $300,000 purchase, that's $15,000. And if they get a 5% appreciation that first year, their house is worth three fifteen. They've essentially doubled their equity um, on their down payment. So it's it's a pretty good math yeah. when when the property values are going up. Yep, I remember that uh, going through. I actually was a class taught by a financial advisor when I was looking into some real estate stuff, and he he asked the question: If I buy a two hundred thousand dollar house and it goes up by fifty thousand dollars, how much money did I make, or what was my return? Yeah. Well, it depended on how much you put down exactly. on the house, right? Yeah. Very uh, very interesting. What what else, Jay? Um, so I just have a couple um, other things to chat about. As far as the um, the ability to deduct the interest, it has to be in a qualified residence, and it's it's kind of unique, Jeff, in that you know most people think of a house. This is kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but there's actually uh, the ability to um, deduct interest on other property types as well. So what qualifies is that there's a sleeping space, a toilet and bath facility, and the ability to to cook, to cook okay. and it's being used by the taxpayer. So I've got some friends down in Florida. They have boats that they can sleep on. 
that have toilet facilities that have kitchen equipment. So you can actually potentially itemize interest expense on a boat. Um, you know, during COVID, RVs were just flying off the shelves at the RV dealer. So, you know, it's not just homes too. It's it's actually any qualified residence, which can extend beyond just a, a single family house. Huh, so wow. it's kind of a neat point. That is. I, I did know that I have an uncle that uh, lives on a boat down in Florida. I wonder if he takes a, takes advantage of that. <laughs> he should be if he's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's uh, that's an interesting one. What else happens? Uh, what other tax things we need to talk about regarding uh, home ownership, uh, rental properties? Yeah. So we'll just start with the most people have a primary residence. Um, so for that, you can um, deduct on the first seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of mortgage. So let's just say that you took out a million dollar mortgage on a property. The IRS only allows you to deduct on the first seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of your mortgage debt. So a person with a million dollar mortgage would only be able to itemize seventy five percent of their interest expense. Okay. So that's one key point. Um, the other thing is that the mortgage debt needs to be used to buy build or improve a property. So if I were to own a house for say five years and then I've accumulated some debt and I want to pay off my car and I were to roll all that uh, debt into a new mortgage, I would only be able to itemize uh, the original balance on the loan that was paid off. On the flip side, if um, I want to do a, a paver patio in the backyard and put in a hot tub and a swimming pool, because that money's being used to buy, build or improve, home improvements on a, on a refinance transaction are, are able to be itemized as well. Okay. I, I did not know that as well. I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that if you take out a home equity line of credit to what consolidate debt or whatever, that that's all deductible. That's not the case. It's not the case. Um, you would have to keep documented receipts of what that money was used for if you were to, to itemize it. Um, I've taught uh, a CE class to CPAs and they've told me that they've never had a client audited for uh, their HELOC interest expense, but that's not encouraging you to do it. It's just saying like it's it would, sure. it would be very rare for that to happen, that they would get that granule, but definitely keep receipts if you're doing home improvements. Gotcha. Same thing. We talked about some tax stuff last week for business owners. Same thing. Keep good documentation, right? Make sure if you're doing things above the board, make sure you document, document that uh, so you don't have any issues if you are unfortunate enough to, to get audited. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, what type of, when somebody sells a home, how, how does that impact them from a, from a tax perspective? Yeah. So great question. Um, there's a couple different options and the biggest thing is you want to be, try and stay in your house for at least two years. Um, if you've been in your house for over two years, for a married couple that's filing jointly, they can make up to $500,000 in profit on their house uh, before they have any tax burden. Um, for a single person, that number is $250,000. So to give you a real world example, if you were to purchase a $500,000 house today, and in three years, a single person was to sell it for $750,000, they'd have made $250,000, there's no taxable event. If uh, a married couple purchased a house for $500,000 and sold it for a million dollars a couple years later, there'd be no tax implications for them currently. Okay. I think a lot of people believe that you have to put all that money into a new, more expensive house in order to, to realize that. That's, that's one of the biggest misconceptions we have. So if you've got a primary residence, um, after two years, any of the profits um, are do not need to be rolled into the next house. We'll, we'll touch on 1031 a little bit later in this conversation, I think. Okay. Um, but for now, on a primary residence, you do not need to roll over the proceeds to your next house. But a lot of our clients that are moving up and have equity, they think they have to do that, but it's not the case. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things clients are having a hard time with right now is giving up those low mortgage rates, right? Yeah. It's slowing down the housing market. We touched on it a, a little bit, the, the deductibility of it. 
but uh, with today's fixed rates, people wanting to move up, buy a newer, bigger, better house, whatever they want to do, uh, what are you seeing buyers do right now to, to counteract that? Yeah, so there's there's a couple different things. Um, one is, you know, if you think back to like the Great Recession of 06, 07, 08, there were a lot of people that became accidental landlords. You know, I'm 43 years old. We were in our, I was in my mid-20s and a lot of my friends you know, they bought a townhouse when they were single and wound up getting married and they had to make that choice back then of becoming a landlord and not having that short sale or foreclosure blemish their credit um, or just, you know, dealing with the property, uh, having the bank deal with it rather, and um, having that credit blemish. So on the flip side of today, people have a bunch of equity. They're not, they're not upside down, but right. they've got this 3% rate that they don't want to say goodbye to. So what was the accidental landlord 15 years ago when people are upside down, now there can be something called like an accidental landlord because people have such a great rate. So some of our clients are actually going to become landlords now and just keep the property, keep the low rate, keep the low payment, and then try and cash flow the property with tenants. So some of our some of our sellers that are moving up are actually becoming landlords because of that. Sure. And uh, I'm guilty of the, the first one for sure. I had a townhouse that uh, I was upside down on, got married, just like you said, kept the townhouse, found a renter to go in there until the value came back up where yep. I didn't have to cut a big uh, a big check <laughs> for it anyways. And uh, it didn't, didn't necessarily cash flow uh, a whole lot, but I did get the, the deductions, right? The depreciation, yep. which maybe talk about that a little bit if I'm not getting ahead, uh, you know, depreciation and then the, the recapture of that yeah. at the time of the sale. Yeah. So um, the IRS allows you to have uh, what's called depreciation. And all that is, is it takes the average life expectancy of a building, which I believe is a, a residential building, is 27 and a half years. And basically, um, if you were to put a property into service as a rental property, you would want to document at the time of putting it into service what the value of the property was and also what the value of the land was. So let's just say that you've got a, a house worth $275,000 and the appraiser or the county assessor says that the the dirt is worth 50,000 and so the structure is worth 225 okay and so we take that 225 in value and divide that by the 27 and a half years or life expectancy and so the IRS allows you to take a tax deduction which is non-tax you're not writing a check to anybody of uh, $8100 in that example using the 225 value okay. and so we do a lot of loans for clients that have you know small losses on their taxes but they're cash flowing a couple hundred dollars every month because of that depreciation expense sure so it's uh, a great short term thing but longer term, uh, when you sell the property, uh, there's something called a recapture tax. So essentially that uh, depreciation is recaptured at the time of sale. Okay. And you're taxing that amount. Gotcha. So you're, you, yeah, you get the deduction in the front end while you're renting it out. But if you do decide to sell that property, 100% of that gets exactly paid back or? Yeah. Okay. Very, very interesting. But a lot, a lot of people end up buying more rental properties and not uh, not selling the the one or two that they maybe have. Yeah, so that's we were chatting about that 1031 exchange. So if you were to uh, have a property that had a profit as a rental, and let's say that um, you you wanted to fry a bigger fish, you know, like you you bought your single family townhome, like you'd said, and uh, you had a bunch of say hundred thousand dollars in equity in that property, you sold it uh, instead of taking that profit and paying taxes on the gains plus the recapture, you can roll that $100,000 into say a, a fourplex and then you would not have the taxable event because your basis would just roll over into the next uh, property and you'd avoid paying taxes. Okay. So you can keep doing that and doing that over and over again. And definitely, yep. As long as you keep the proceeds going into the next property. Okay. 
So that's where maybe the misconception comes from. People have to roll it into a, a bigger property or more expensive property all the time. Exactly. Okay. Very interesting. Um, got into something. What, what about the, the good news and bad news discussing uh, capital gains, um, referring to two out, of, two out of five years? Yeah. So that's a great, great point. So, you know, if, if a family has been in their house, say, for three or four years right now, and they've got a bunch of equity. They don't want to say goodbye to the three percent rate, but you know, let's say they've got twins on the way, and they need just more space. Um, they can convert their primary residence into a rental property, and the IRS says as long as you've lived in a property two of the last five years, you're still excluded from that capital gain. So, in this hypothetical family's example, they lived there for three years. They move out. If they sold it in years three, I'm sorry, if they sold it in three years from now. Mm-hmm they could still exclude that capital gain because if they do the five-year look back, years one and two, they were still there. They rented out for three years. So they would still be able to enjoy the um, the no capital gains uh, expense. Okay. And they won't go one year beyond that. Now they lose that, that option. Yeah, they lose a percentage of it. So let's just okay. say that um, they held it for eight years after they moved out. So the IRS would look back and say, you lived there for the past 10 years. You lived there for two out of the 10 and eight out of those 10 were for rentals. So you'd, you'd have uh, 20% of the game to be excludable. Okay. Wow. Interesting. I did not know that. That's new. To, that's news to me. Um, passive, uh, passive losses, not being deductible for the average W2 earner. What's that? What's that referring to? Yeah. So a lot of people, you know, the late night infomercial people buy real estate, get rich, don't pay taxes. Well, that's really applicable for people called a, a qualified real estate professional. And that's okay. somebody that that's their full-time job. If you're just a regular lunch bucket guy working nine to five as a mechanic or a mortgage broker or a financial planner, the IRS says you're not a qualified real estate professional. You're a financial planner, you're a mortgage broker, you're a mechanic, you're a you know accountant, et cetera. Um, you can't take that depreciation and those losses on your taxes to offset your W-2 income. Okay. So the way that you realize that is when you do sell the property, you basically have a bunch of years worth of carry forward losses uh, that you can recapture at the end of the of the uh, holding period. But in the short term, if you're a W-2 employee um, or wage earner, there's really not a ton of tax savings uh, that you can realize to offset your wages. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned before uh, primary residence, two years or two out of five. Yep. Now, if you do that and you don't have to pay the capital gains tax on the, your primary residence, can you keep, can you keep doing that? Buy yeah. a new house and then two more years, yeah. do it again? You can do it as, as long as you're there for two years. You can do it as often as you want. Up to the two fifty for a single and five hundred thousand for a married couple. Exactly. Jointly. Yep. Is there any cap at the at the top end of that? You no. As many times as you want. Yep. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, we talked about the depreciation benefits recapture. Did you want to go into any more detail on the ten thirty one exchange? Um, yeah. So essentially, it's it's a way to trade up in property. So you know, a lot of real estate investors, if if you're starting out in real estate, it's it's hard to go out and buy a 24 unit apartment building as your first property, right? Right. But it's not so hard if you're a 22 year old just graduated college. You know, we can help clients get into a, a fourplex with three or three and a half percent down as a way to start building wealth early in real estate. So if you're if you're young and you're listening to this, it's a great idea to try and have as little down payment as possible on as many units as possible, so that say in four, five, six years from now, you know, you might be able to sell that fourplex and roll that over into a 12plex or something like that and and take advantage of the 1031 and avoid any taxes on that. Okay. Gotcha. Talk a little bit about Jay, first time home buyer, even a new home buyer. Uh, 
housing prices have gone up quite a bit. I think I saw some of the average home in Minnesota is now roughly $400,000 yep. are the median price of a home these days. Yep. What, in order to buy a $400,000 home, what does somebody need to earn an in income? How does that work? What determines how much house a person can afford? Yeah, so a lot of it, if, if we've got a first-time home buyer, one of the things that we'll ask them is, you know, what are you paying in rent and how comfortable is that? So that's a good baseline is if they're paying rent right now, what does that look like? Because everybody's budget is a little bit different. You know, my I've got a family member that keeps their heat at, you know, 58 degrees in the winter sure. and eats Cheerios every day for breakfast. Her <laughs> different is, you know, her budget's different than the person that, you know, runs the AC full blast in the summer and goes out and has, you know, a Starbucks for breakfast and a Starbucks for lunch. So yeah. a lot of it comes down to the individual and what their spending patterns are and what their other financial plans are. Sure, sure. If somebody wanted to find out, is there, is there a place, do you have a place they can go? Any type of calculator or anything like that available? Yeah, we usually like to have a quick conversation over the phone, just get a, get a feel for things. Okay. And then we're able to, after that first call, get, like I said, kind of dial in on what their monthly payment is comfortable at and also um, what they've got available for down payment. So those that's a big factor too, is what's available for down payment in terms of what price point they'd be looking at. Sure. And if they're, if they're not renting, you know, I think there's a stat that's like 50% of people between 18 and 32 are still living at home. So wow. when we have conversations with those clients, it's like, well, you've been living rent-free in mom and dad's basement. How much have you been able to save every month and use that as a barometer to how much they can qualify for on their own? I mean, we can get them qualified for usually a much bigger number sure. than what they're comfortable affording. But if, yeah. if you're living rent-free, it's how much have you been able to put away every month in savings. That's a pretty good gauge. Yeah, no, that's good. We do a lot of similar things in our, in our industry, right? Just because you uh, your bills are X and your income is Y, doesn't mean everything above X is there to be saved, right? Potentially right. they could. Potentially you could put all this money into a home, but are you really going to do it, right? right? Not put somebody in a situation where they have more house than they can afford. That doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah, that's the last thing we try and do. Yeah, good, good, good to know. Uh, any Anything else that we missed? I guess one question, Jay, should people be discouraged by the high interest rates they're seeing today. Is that enough reason to hold off on buying a home? Well, I think for people that have been looking for a couple of years, it's kind of a, an eye opener that they could have or should have, you know, 2020, 2021 in those spring markets, um, you know, people were going 20, 30, $40,000 over asking price and people were getting discouraged. And that's when rates were at 3%. Now that they're at 8%, Home values haven't come back down because of that, because there's so much demand. And so I would say that if you take a big picture, the the average person is buying their house based on the monthly payment. They're not looking at the sales price. The sales price is a function of what's my monthly payment going to be. Sure. And so as we hopefully we'll see interest rates trend back down in the next year or two or three, um, people making a payment are going to be willing to pay more for the same house if rates are at 5% versus 8%. And so if you can afford the payment today at 8%, you'll have the opportunity to, to lock in today's pricing and then down the road potentially have the opportunity to refinance into a lower rate, lower payment. So I wouldn't be discouraged. And what I, what I usually do is I'll do a screen share with my clients, like hop on a Zoom call and I'll pull up uh, the MLS and what's, what's active and for sale. And I'll just do new construction, um, $400,000. And if you look at that, you'll have to go out to like a third ring, second ring plus suburb to get a new construction home for $400,000. And it's usually a, a nice three bedroom townhome. Sure. So if you're a first time home buyer and your, your parents or aunt and uncle are kind of giving you a hard time for spending $300,000 on a you know starter home in a first ring suburb, it's like, well, the alternative is to go 30 minutes further south or west or east to get a townhome. So I, I think there's 
an inherent um, cost of replacement is is one of the factors that we need to factor is that um, the, the cost to replace new construction in the inner core, it's going to be, you know, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to replace that three hundred fifty thousand dollar house just because the cost of construction is so high. So I would not be discouraged right now if I was a first time home buyer. In fact, I'd be very aggressive right now because the media has done a good job of, of discouraging a lot of people and telling them that it's doom and gloom. So if you're a if you haven't bought a first house, now is actually a pretty good time because heading into the winter months, uh, things tend to slow down and uh, people tend to kind of go into hibernation mode until next spring. So now is actually a, a pretty good time to lock in today's pricing. And then in the future, try and take advantage of the interest rate reductions if they happen. Yeah, great, great point. And unlike uh, rent, the rental markets, if you purchase a home today at a price you can afford, that price is going to stay the same. Your monthly mortgage payment stays the same for the next potentially 30 years, where we know rental prices are going to increase. Your income is going to increase. A home that may not be extremely affordable today, down the road, is going to be much more much more affordable if you're able to stay there and hang on to it for long enough to get that appreciation. Exactly. I think Warren Buffett said the 30-year the fixed rate was like the greatest invention of all time for home buyers because it gives them that hedge against interest rates in the future. Uh, but if they do come down, they can always refinance. But if they go up, they're they're fixed for 30 years. And yep. like you had said, over time, you know, rents are going to go up, uh, home values are going to go up, and so having that 30-year fixed rate at, at your first home is it's a really huge benefit. Yeah, great, great, great point. Yeah, one of the questions we always get as financial advisors is, hey, should I pay off my my home mortgage? You know, and that answer is starting to change a little bit depending on where people are at. Yeah. When everybody's pushing three and a half percent interest rates on their homes. Well, no, there's no reason financially to pay that home off. Right. You can go out and get more interest uh, than, than you're paying on your loans. So therefore, do not pay it off. Yep. Now, as we get rates up there, you know, 7 or 8%, uh, the answer may change uh, slightly depending on your age and what your other financial goals are. Yeah, you always have to look at the big picture. You don't want to just give a blanket prescription for everybody. But uh, I think yeah. there's still, um, especially some of the tax advantage of being able to itemize. You know, we've seen some clients that are very high income earners, you know, some doctors that we have as clients. We we had scenarios done for them with their CPA that showed that their 7.5% rate after itemizing was actually under 5%. And so there's actually huge tax benefits that could be available to you, um, depending on your circumstances. And obviously, the the greater the income level, the higher your tax bracket, the bigger the benefit. Sure, sure, yeah, great, all great points. So what I hear you saying, and if you're in the in the market for a new home, uh, new property, don't let the high interest rates uh, scare you off. At least explore it. Uh, call a mortgage broker. Uh, call your real estate professional and find out uh, what's available and what what the true what the true cost is. Exactly. Well, perfect. Anything else you'd like to add as we uh, wrap things up, Jay? There's there's one thing that we're seeing some of our clients take advantage of. And I talked earlier about to be a qualified real estate professional is how you can take advantage of some of that depreciation. Mm -hmm. So the IRS actually kind of gave those of us that are W-2 earners a present. And um, we've had a ton of clients the last two or three years get into the VRBO Airbnb game. Yes. And, you know, the family that wants to buy the cabin, it's a bit of a stretch for them. They're buying the cabin and then putting it on VRBO and just utilizing it the weekends that they're not, uh, it's not booked up or they're pick, they're cherry picking the couple of weekends that they want to be up there and letting the other market, uh, the other weekends be free. Sure. So the IRS now allows uh, a W-2 earner to take advantage of the depreciation um, if it's a short-term rental. And, and that basically says, well, they're an active participant in that business. So if you're looking at buying a cabin, um, you can actually 
take advantage of some of the tax benefits that the the big boy players in real estate take advantage of right now. Okay, are there are there some simple rules or guidelines uh, surrounding that? No, it's basically as long as you're actively um, participating and managing the property, um, you can take advantage of the appreciation. And actually, there's another thing, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but there's something called a cost segregation study that if you're a high W-2 wage earner, you could go into, say, a, a $500,000 cabin and have a have a study done. And you know we had talked earlier that it's uh, 27 and a half years is what the IRS says is what you need to depreciate over. Yes. There's cost segregation studies that can can be done where you can come in and have an appraiser or an assessor that's qualified say, well, actually, you know, the cabinets, the microwave, the fridge, those only have a five-year life expectancy. And so, you know, using a, a $500,000 house, they might say $200,000 of that is uh, allowable for a short-term depreciation schedule. And you can take a greater advantage of that through what's called a cost segregation study and don't deduct the, the full value over 27 and a half years. You can take a uh, portion of the value if it's got a less than five-year replacement value and do a uh, accelerated appreciation. So we've had a couple clients take advantage of that as well. Yeah, great point. I know that's available in the business world. Somebody owns commercial property. I know there's a big difference between your HVAC system depreciation and the you know the actual building itself. Yep. So you can depreciate things at, at different rates to take advantage. So great point. I didn't know that was, uh, was an option yeah, as well. Yeah, it's a fairly new thing. Okay, very interesting. Well, I learned a ton today. Uh, a lot of great information from you, Jay. If some of our listeners have questions regarding mortgages, what's available, what their options are, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, you can pick up the phone, give us a call at the office, 651-315-7681, or feel free to visit our website at www.jdacy.com. That's J-A-Y-D-A-C-E-Y.com. And Jeff, thanks for having me. What's what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks a lot, Jay. Great to have you as well. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to us on Paladin Financial Talk. And you can reach myself or my office at 651-842-8406. Or, of course, on the, the old information superhighway at uh, www.paladinfinancial.com. That does it for our show today. Thanks again, Jay. Great spending time with you. We'll look forward to our next conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Paladin Financial Talk. Don't pay too much for taxes or retire without a sound income plan. For more information, please contact Jeff Foley at Paladin Financial. Call 877-219-3199 or visit their website at financialpaladin.com. Advisory services offered through Paladin Wealth LLC, a Minnesota registered investment advisor. Paladin Wealth LLC offers advisory services under the DBA Paladin Financial and Paladin Wealth. Insurance products and services offered through Paladin Insurance LLC. Paladin Wealth LLC and Paladin Insurance LLC are affiliated companies. All matters discussed during the show are for informational purposes only. Each individual situation may vary and the opinions expressed here may not apply to everyone. Materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources and no representations can be made as to its accuracy. All ideas and information should be discussed in detail with one of our qualified representatives prior to implementation. We are not affiliated with or enforced by the Social Security Administration, the Federal Medicare Program, or any other government agency. Calling this number will direct you to a licensed sales agent.